we are uh, moving into a new section of Romans, the last section of Romans in sort of the outline form that we've had. And this is a section from 12 through 16 about the faithfulness and the fellowship that comes because of everything we've learned about God in chapters 1 through uh, 11. And we have learned about God's covenant faithfulness, even in the midst of both Jewish and Gentile rejection of God uh, in different ways. But the same theme is always there. That is, humans really have a difficulty understanding and appreciating and embracing the richness of the Creator God. Uh, It is a tough thing for us to acknowledge the wisdom of God when we look all around us and pragmatically it seems like human wisdom, even the wisdom of the snake. You could be like God. That just makes sense, doesn't it? If all I have to do is participate in eating some measure of fruit and I can be like God, there's just certain ways in which that seems fairly reasonable. And why wouldn't I want to be like God? And if I was really thinking about it, why wouldn't God want me to be like him? And so in the end, I'm just doing this for God. Right? And if you can rationalize that quickly, maybe you can't as quickly as I can, but I'm gifted. That all of a sudden we realize that our minds are very quickly clouded and able to warp just about anything into a manner that seems both reasonable and rational and the right thing to do. And we have been hearing time and time again how the danger of that is that instead of having faith in the wisdom of God, even when he brings us to the very shadow or the valley of the shadow of death, it is those moments where we think that God cannot really have it all together. And Abraham's faith in even bringing Isaac to the mountain is a statement of faith in a God who raises from the dead and is covenantly faithful, even though Abraham had no idea how that would work out. And how God could and would be right and righteous, even in an action that seemed to us so clearly out of bounds. And yet Paul has walked us through Abraham's faithfulness. And the challenge that Israel and Gentiles face time and time again when God reveals his character and his nature. And humans think, yeah, I could probably improve on that. If you just let me tweak this aspect, God, I can make you more marketable, more easily acceptable to more people. But Paul started in Romans chapter 1 saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then then to the Gentile. And so we're going to again take hold of what Paul believes to be our greatest joy and our greatest freedom, what brings us salvation, what we sang about this morning, freedom itself from death and sin and the violent cycles of self-abuse and victimization of others that happens when humans become their own gods. When humans eschew the wisdom of God, everybody, including myself, becomes a victim of the logic that follows. So Paul now, in great vim and vigor, turns to the applications of what it means to be saved by grace through faith alone. 
Please turn with me, if you have your scriptures, to Romans chapter 1, 12, 12, we're not starting all over, 12, 1 through 8 this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we may have many members, and the, men, and the members do not all have the same function, so we through many are one in, in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in, por- in proportion to our faith, in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we are again delighted to know that you have been poured out in such a way that the saints of old looked forward to the intimacy and the presence of becoming temples, places where God dwells. And as you dwell with us, we know that your desire is that truth and light grow in us. And we pray that that would happen again in some measure this morning by your Spirit as we open your Word. And we ask that whatever is said this morning would be useful for the building up of your people. And whatever is said that is untrue, Lord, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. There is a real sense as we look at this text that we want to participate with the joy that seems so clear in Paul's words here. He's excited about what it means. He's excited about the unity of the body. He is excited about what God can and will do through his people. Because again, as we go back to chapter 1, he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's excited about it. Even though it means confronting real evil, real death, those enemies are defeated. Therefore, we can be optimistic that as we work together in Christ, good things can and will happen. That the kingdom of God can and does move forward. And that as Paul talks about the freedom that we have to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to have our minds renewed and to see a body knitted together out of Jew and Gentile alike in a fashion that all are blessed and that all are honored rightly for their ability to use the gifts and the measure of the faith that have been given to them. 
therefore reflecting the honor and glory back to the one that gave them that faith and gave them those gifts that God might be praised always. And so this morning, I want to work through this text. We're going to do a somewhat alliterated outline. I was going to ask Monty if he'd heard that, that I had a learning disability. And uh, in my learning disability and dyslexia, it does cause an issue in spelling. And so as far as I'm concerned, this is a four-part sermon that is alliterated. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about uh, the beauty of God's wisdom. We're going to talk about being winsome. And we're going to talk about being one in Christ. All four W's. First of all, worship. Now, I could camp out for days on this. But in verse 1, he says that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices as an act of worship. Now, I am passionate about the liturgy we have here at CVP. I believe that there is a basic rhythm in Scripture, throughout Scripture, of how God ministers to people when they come into His presence. And that that is an eternal structure to worship. And that what we're practicing for is our eternal and present interaction with God Himself. And so the structures, the liturgies, though they can be done with organs or guitars and music or 15 different ways, has basic elements. Basic elements that are built into the worship order of service that we have that is oriented towards God renewing his covenant with us and renewing us to be members of and instruments of his covenant going forward to others. Which is why God calls us into worship. And you know that I could go on a long time about what that teaches me and what it teaches our covenant children about interacting in the world after worship. Who does God call into worship? The righteous? The folks who didn't sin this week? The people that were always nice to him? No. Some of us were. Some of us had glorious moments where we actually acted in line with Christ's character. Praise be to Jesus. But when we invite people, we're not just inviting the people who can bless us back. And what does it mean to be called into worship? It is a calling God who calls all manner of people to come and be blessed. So do we then become people of that calling? Do we call others? We practice every week what it means to call the other into our fellowship. Because God calls the other, you and me, into his fellowship. We start with evangelism. It doesn't mean the service is evangelistic. It does mean it tells us about what God does. We talk about celebrating the glory of God. And we sing his praises because when Isaiah sees the, praise, uh, sees the glory of God, he experiences the cherubim singing, holy, holy, holy. We begin to learn about the glory of God. In the confession of sin, we learn about our own brokenness and dependency. And you've heard me say more than once that in heaven we will still have, the other side of glory, we'll still have a confession of need. We will never stop needing God to will us to exist. But what does that teach our children? It teaches our children to forgive. It teaches them to confess, to not cover up their sins, to acknowledge their need 
of forgiveness and to extend forgiveness to one another. And we model that. And I could go through all of this, but what does it mean? It means that I offer myself as a living sacrifice, that I go to worship to be transformed and rearranged, that I leave my desires that may be sinful and have all that I am rearranged by the preaching of the word, by the singing of songs, and by the reading of God's word and the prayers. I go to worship to offer myself that I might be remade. Because left to my own wisdom, I'm still stuck in Romans chapter 1, ignoring and hiding what is made plain in all of creation because I am driven by my own desires and passions. All of life must be structured by worship and the liturgy therein. So that once we know we're restored, we hear God's word, we're blessed and we're sent out, we have the sacraments because God always feeds his people. And he invites all who are willing to confess their faith in him to that table. All of life is worship. And that's why Paul can say as he begins to apply everything that's happened in the first 11 chapters, worship. Give yourself. And trust, just like Abraham did, that when God gets done rearranging you, as painful as it may be, at times as unwise as you may think God is, it's better. It's actually for freedom. It's actually for salvation. That Abraham, having the faith of giving his own son, is no significant difference than me being willing to put myself on the altar and have God rearrange me. But in Christ, I can do that because the resurrection has happened and I no longer fear death and nothing that God cuts out is worth saving. Worship. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is the joy that happens because of salvation, because of the joy of the gospel. So we have worship. But from worship, we go to wisdom because, again, it's not that God just wants us to be robots or he's going to rearrange us so that our minds no longer think about sin and only think happy thoughts about Jesus. No, no, no. Because you were created in the image of God, you were given the ability to know and to learn and to grow. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to discuss things with you. He's happy for you to ask questions and not understand and wrestle with and have your mind renewed so that you can experience the joy of saying, aha, that's what you're like. That's what that means. That's what it means when I forgive. That's what it means when I invite. That means when I'm still and just listen to you, whether that's in the glory of creation or in the sound of a beautiful uh, choir, or in the presence of great art, or in the reading of poetry where we just stop fighting it and just let it happen to us. And in other moments, praying for the strength to endure yet again and to lean into the difficult change. All of these things are different experiences of what it means to have our minds renewed and we do need to have them renewed, desperately have them renewed, because the pressures of culture outside and inside the church are everywhere, and there's always an easier way to do things. It's easier just to fit men and women into certain categories. Women 
go at home and they have children. Men go outside and kill wildebeest. That's handy. Doesn't happen to be what's in Proverbs 31 or most of Scripture. But nonetheless, it's just easier to slip into Roman sort of uh, notions of the pater familia and the man being a priest in his home and all these things, which are wonderfully pagan and not terribly Christian. What it means to serve one another in love. What it means, interestingly enough, for our whole goal as husbands to love our wives the way love uh, God loves the church, which means the whole point is their success, not ours. And how much does the church wrestle with thinking that women's roles is to support the man's success when the Bible says actually the whole role of the man is to support the wife's success, the way Christ loves the church? I don't know what that means in your family. The implications are as complicated and infinite as the number of people. What I know is that the mindset of the world has invaded the church and we've gotten things backwards. Our minds need to be renewed. That doesn't mean we'll be any less masculine or any less feminine. All of the fear tactics shouldn't work. What I do know is that when I can see things coming in from the pagan world and infesting the church's notion, that we have to renew our minds. What does it mean for me to love my wife as Christ loves the church so that she can be all she was created to be? in different seasons of her life, inside and outside the home, whether she's called to have children or not have children, whether she, that season is over or another season has come, whether she is delighting in the season of having kids and having all that she needs to maximize who and what she is as she cares for us as a family. There are sneaky ways in which the world will attach itself to half-truths of Scripture. It's done it in the way we understand race and gender, economics, politics, right actions. The renewing of our minds is regularly seeing that the limitations and the small views that human beings can come up with are transformed by the bigness and expanse of an infinite God who has revealed infinite truth in his scripture and no human idea about family, about politics, about mercy and justice fit in scripture. In fact, I said that backwards. They're all too small. They can't fit the bigness of scripture. Humans limit God's ideas. We boil them down to something I can get my mind around and throw at you on a bumper sticker. And scripture is infinite in its wisdom and its beauty. It will always transcend any short-term human philosophy. Both affirming and negating, as common grace allows. The whole of our minds need to be reminded, uh, renewed. I have several more illustrations, but we'll move on. Winsome. Winsome, humble and gracious. What does Paul say at the beginning of verse 4 and moving forward? There's a humility and a winsomeness and a grace. It doesn't mean we stop telling the truth. It doesn't mean we don't act in line with the kingdom, even if it's offensive to the world. What we know is that it's to be done in a winsome manner, in a manner that draws people in, that has by definition a humility to it. It 
comes with grace. The grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. I have a friend who says regularly, we trust us too much. We think because we're Christian or because we whatever, fill in the blank, or I've been a minister for 20 years, that I shouldn't have people speaking into my life, that somehow I've transcended in such a way, or we've transcended as a culture that there is no critique from the outside that can be valid. Sober-minded, of course I'm able to twist Scripture just as well as the next person. I may twist different Scripture, but if I'm not having my mind renewed, and if I'm not sober-minded, then I'm more likely to think that the problem is the sinners out there, that their twisting of the Scriptures are more horrific than my twisting of Scriptures. And the chances are that's just not true. And we're all capable of it, and no one has stopped. And the reason we have so many denominations is that oftentimes an aspect of Scripture becomes the emphasis of a a group of brothers and sisters, and they do that part wonderfully, and they let other parts fall to the side. And so what we can find commendable about our Baptist brothers and sisters or about our Anglican brothers and sisters or about our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters is that there are things they really do well that we should learn from because they have a history and an understanding of certain aspects of who God is that are not present in Presbyterianism. But gosh, we should certainly be at the table. There is great richness to our tradition and our understanding and mining some of the depths of the gospel through our theology and systematic theology and faith. But that doesn't mean we should not learn from or be sober-minded about our own blind spots and confess first and not say, what about the weaknesses of the Roman Catholic faith and their view of priests? Or what about the problem that the Baptists don't have a good eschatology? Or what about... No, no, no. Just deal with the log in our own eye. Let God deal with our brothers and sisters in other traditions or the world. And just say, Lord, what would you have us do? May I be sober-minded in being renewed so that I can be winsome and respond graciously when you confront me or we're confronted as a community of faith and we respond in a fashion that promotes the grace and humility that comes from salvation by faith alone and not by works. And lastly, one. We are one in Christ. Uh, We have many members, many different parts. And there is a uniqueness both to each individual, almost like a cell in a human body, and there's also groups of people who are particularly gifted, although uh, in ways that Paul delineates. And we need all of them in the body. And that unity, again, through the renewing of our mind, putting off the pressures of the world. Gosh, we've got to fight consumerism in the church. We don't market ourselves as the theology church or the evangelistic church or the social justice church or the accept everybody. You can't, no, no. 
Because what that means is that the helpers all go to this church, and the theologians all go to this church, and the fill in the blank go to the other church, and you got a whole church of arms and a whole church of feet. Paul wants all of that to be one, which is messy and difficult. Right? I closed my hand in a door. They still hurt. Still have unattractive black fingernails. Maybe I'd like to just get rid of my hand for a while. It's an aggravation. When Jesus says cut off something that's going to sin, he doesn't mean cut off parts of the body of Christ when they are hurting or broken or needing restoration. We are one. And to whatever degree CVP can continue to be a place for people who are historically reformed, folks who are learning about the reformed faith but applying the gospel in different ways, people who have come to this congregation, Lord willing, because of the joy that comes from knowing Christ and salvation through faith alone and seeing God put together a diversity of experience and background and age for his glory and the good of our community. That you may walk in here one Sunday and the music will sound like it's 1950. And you come in the next Sunday and it might be as early as 2007. I don't know. But as a community of faith, isn't that the richness? That some days the music is exactly what my heart wants and some days the music is, I know that's benefiting and blessing someone else. Nobody wins the worship wars. There's just casualties and broken churches. To live as a community of faith and to recognize the oneness and the differences mean that those differences have to be there. And that the glory of God is that he draws us together in worship from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. He wants our minds to be renewed in a full picture of his character and nature. No caricatures, no small God that fits into my culture or my head, but the transcendent God of all eternity who can minister as successfully in the United States as he can in China because he's the God of everyone. And because of that, I can be winsome just as Jesus was winsome. He never gave an inch and he gave all that he was which then creates a new basis for our unity. A unity that transcends all of the small categories that human beings often find most comfortable. That is Paul's great turn, this great salvo, this celebration that starts Romans 12. Let us give ourselves as living sacrifices, no longer afraid of death, and only building for eternity and the glory of God and life for all who will call on his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that you are a transcendent and powerful God. We need not fear, but we desire, oh, we desire to be awed by your power and encouraged to know that that strength is in and through us by your spirit that we too can delight and rejoice as Paul does with the power of the gospel to set people free.
We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.